Good morning, crowd family. Happy, happy Sunday. And as always, so glad you can join us today. Hey, just a friendly reminder that this coming Sunday, April 4th at 10 a.m., again, that's April 4th at 10 a.m., is our in-car church service in our church parking lot as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So hopefully you can join us. If not, we're still providing online service as well. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11 is today's text. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. We're now in part 12 of our series, Undivided. Now, before we dive into the text, as always, I want to do a, a quick review from last week's text, which was chapter 5, and the focus was on church discipline. Now, remember, in the first four chapters, Paul introduces a shameful problem in the church, which was pride. And we saw that the Corinthian believers were proudly attaching themselves to certain leaders, uh, creating cliques, factions, uh, fan clubs, groupies that were undermining, that were threatening the unity of the church. In chapter 5, Paul calls attention to another problem plaguing the church, which was immorality. And the whole chapter wasn't just about the immorality of one church member, but also about the pride and passivity of the entire church in response to this one church member. It was common knowledge in the whole church that there was a particular incident of sexual immorality in their fellowship. There was a man in their fellowship who was sleeping with his father's wife. Uh, most likely it was his stepmother. The text says a man has his father's wife, and so he was committing incest. Now, now Paul not only exposes the man's sin, but also the church's sin, the sin of refusing to discipline uh, this man. Look at verse 2 with me. Verse 2, Paul says, And you are proud? Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief? and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this. So Paul's rebuking the Corinthian church for pridefully and, and boastfully tolerating sin in their fellowship. Let's look at verse 3. Even though I am not physically present, Paul says, I am with you in what? In spirit. And I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. So, so Paul judged, right? He judged and the Corinthian believers were to comply with his declaration by carrying out the discipline on, on the man. And he told them uh, what to do, the Corinthian church, what to do to follow the process, say process, process for implementing church discipline. And so Paul says to hand this man over to who? Over to Satan. And by the way, this is the, the final step of church discipline given from Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 through 17, and we saw that last week. But at this point, this man had been warned of his sin by a brother or sister in Christ, and then by the elders of the church, and then finally by some kind of public rebuke, the last step in the disciplinary process. So obviously this man didn't submit himself to church discipline. So this is why Paul tells the church tells them to remove this man, to exclude this man from their fellowship, uh, to deliver this man over to Satan. And you see, the hope is that the unrepented Christian, while in Satan's realm, realm, excuse me, will find himself or herself miserable, sensing that they cannot live without uh, the, the fellowship of God's people. You see, the goal of church discipline is that they would come to the end of themselves, that they would come to their senses and repent. You see, church discipline is not punitive, but restorative. 
Paul then lays out the purpose of the church of church discipline, and that is to guard the purity of the church and to prevent sin from spreading within the church. And what he does, he uses yeast or, or a leaven metaphor. Paul then gives the principle, or we could say the rule, regarding judging others. And let's jump to verses 12 through 13a, and he says this, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? Verse 13a, God will judge those outside. You see, the Corinthian believers were failing to judge where they should have made a judgment. And you see, we as believers, as Christians, have no responsibility for judging outsiders. We are to witness to outsiders, but not judge them. But we do have a responsibility as believers to judge those who are within the church, to judge those who claim to be believers. Paul then uh, clinches the case for the removal of the offender. In verse 13b, the last part of verse 13 says, Expel the wicked man from among you. And this is uh, the one who persistently and unrepentantly continues in sin after being warned. But, but our prayer and, and, and our hope should be that they will repent and then therefore be restored. Right? This now brings us to today's text. And the title of today's text is Suing Saints. Say that, Suing Saints. Now listen, the four most overused words in our American vocabulary are I will sue you. I will sue you because everybody is suing everybody else. Children are suing parents. Students are suing teachers. Um, players are suing coaches. Spouses are suing their marriage partners. And this isn't just limited to non-Christians. Christians are suing each other. Christian faculty members are now filing suit against the administration of Christian schools. Churches are suing churches. Churches are suing pastors and vice versa. Brothers and sisters in Christ, in the family of God, are suing each other. Now, what we see today is nothing new. This was happening in, in Paul's day. In fact, in ancient Greece, the church in Corinth was so happy. And you see, the Corinthians were living in a society that loved to be involved in lawsuits. In the city of Athens, one ancient writer even claimed that every Athenian was a lawyer. And what he meant by that was everybody is involved in some kind of lawsuit all the time. It was a form of challenge or an, even a form of, of entertainment to them. And they had a system of private arbitration and then court of 40 and then even the possibility of jury trials composed of literally hundreds or even thousands of jurors in Athens. Every citizen had to serve as a public arbitrator at the age of 16. You see, taking one another to court was a natural part of life. But I want you to, to keep in mind as we study the text that this is about a whole lot more than taking people to court. This is about whether Christians, listen now, whether Christians handle life differently than those who do not know God. And in the text, Paul makes it clear that Christians of all people, Christians of all people ought to be able to settle their own disputes. And the key in doing so is to understand their true identity in Christ. 
Listen, friends, when we understand who we are in Christ, when we understand that, we won't have to war with others, other believers, should I say other believers, over lawsuits. And Paul's point is that we should live out who we are. Now, I want to make it clear that that here in the text, Paul is dealing with financial disputes. Get that? Get that? Right? Get that? Financial disputes. The text has absolutely nothing, nothing to do with criminal cases, violent crimes, murder, child abuse, sexual abuse, rape, domestic violence, or any sin you like to name that's a, a criminal offense in the eyes of the law. God does. God does ordain government to judge in those legal matters. In fact, Romans chapter 13, Romans 13 verses 1 through 4 states that the system is necessary to restrain evil and bring about justice. So here Paul is simply dealing with financial disputes. You got to get that. He's simply dealing with financial disputes. Things that that you would, you know, normally take to uh to small small claims court, small claims court. So in the text Paul points out four things that the Corinthian believers were doing when they were suing each other. If you're ready, say yes. Here we go. They were, number one, they were, number one, dismissing their credentials. Dismissing their credentials. I want you to write that down. Dismissing their credentials. And let's look at verse one here, the text. And Paul writes, If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it? Dare he take it? Before the ungodly, did you get that? For judgment instead of before the saints. You see, these Corinthian believers were taking their law problems, disputes, and complaints before the unsaved judges, bringing the name of Jesus Christ low and ruining the testimony of the local church. And Paul's like, how dare you take your legal grievances against each other before unrighteous people. Paul's like, how could you do this? I mean, what 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 are you what are you thinking? And Paul's, you know, Paul's Paul Paul was outraged and he was stunned, stunned that one Christian would persecute another Christian before the secular courts. I mean, even Jews understood that disputes were to be settled among the brotherhood. They, they, they had a saying. And the saying is this, it's a statute which binds all Israelites that if one Israelite has a cause against another, it must not be prosecuted before the Gentiles. So they had a procedure set up for dealing with differences within the Jewish community, and this was Paul's background. And Paul's point was that disputes between Christians should be handled within the local church. That, that they get wise counsel uh, from pastors and leaders and other wise church members that it should be handled within the local church and not in the secular courts. Why? Why? Because as Christians, we have a different value system than that of the world. You see, the courts look, look to assign blame and the Christian community should be seeking reconciliation. I want you to follow me here. In the secular courts, there are always winners and losers, and the result is often shattered, broken relationships, right? In the Christian community, listen now, 
We should be striving for understanding fairness, and the result should be people feeling that a problem has been resolved fairly and relationships preserved. Let's move on, verses 2 and verse 3. Paul says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Like these ones, these financial cases. Do you not know that we will judge angels? Now, I want to say this. He's speaking of fallen angels. We will judge fallen angels. And uh, Jude speaks of fallen angels, uh, the book of Jude. And also 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Peter speaks there of fallen angels. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Then he says, Paul, then Paul says, How much more the things of this life? Now, if you're safe, say amen. Come on, if you're safe, say amen. Listen, we will be involved in God's process of judging the world and the fallen angels, and this will be in the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign. Revelation 20, verse 4, write that down. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, John writes, I saw thrones on which were seated those, which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. The those there is us. Did you get that? And so Paul's point is that if God is going to give us this job later, shouldn't we be able to handle disputes between each other, especially these trivial cases? Shouldn't we be capable of doing this since we will someday be granted judgment of the entire world? And Paul's saying we should, but obviously they weren't. And this brings us to point number two. I mean, they were just, number one, they were dismissing their credentials, and, and, and they were number two. They were number two, destroying their credibility. Write that down. They were destroying, destroying their credibility. Write that down. And we're going to look at verse four now. Verse four now. Paul writes, Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. Better translated would be, do you appoint them, speaking of secular judges, who are of no account in the church? Now, now Paul's not saying, he's not saying to dishonor secular judges. He's not saying that. What he's saying is a secular judge who doesn't understand the relationship of one Christian to another, who has no concept of the family of God, who doesn't understand that Christians are members of one another, should not judge in matters concerning believers. That's what Paul's saying. And listen, whether they, speaking of judges, secular judges, are honorable or not, if they have not been born again, they have no standing, they have no authority in the church, therefore are not qualified to judge in spiritual matters. They don't have the godly wisdom to mediate, to mediate the dispute. Let's move on, verse 5. If you're still with me, say amen. Verse 5, I say this to shame you. And Paul don't play. Paul doesn't play. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? Paul's like, shame on you, really? There's not one wise in the whole church 
In the congregation, there's not one wise, mature believer among you who could judge and arbitrate between brothers and sisters in disputes. Not one. You see, Paul knew that God can give wisdom even to the weakest and to the least mature believers if they will just seek God for it and ask God for wisdom. I mean, what does it say in James 1.5? James writes in James 1.5, if, if any of you lacks wisdom, if you do, he should ask God who gives generously, love that, without finding fault, and it will be given to him. And what Paul is saying in the text is that, is, is that, excuse me, is that disputes between believers ought to be settled by believers because believers, listen now, believers have a higher wisdom than unbelieving judges. Got it? Than unbelieving judges. Verse 6. But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. You see, because of the, the absence of these wise, mature believers, they were going public in secular courts and therefore having their testimony as a church trashed before the world. It's a shameful, humiliating disgrace in the sight of God and it was, listen now, destroying their credibility as believers. John 13.35 John 13, 35, Jesus says, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, right? If you love one. They'll know this, what, by your love, if you love one another. Unfortunately, everyone saw them suing each other, not loving one another. It was destroying their credibility. So they were, number one, dismissing their credentials. They were, number two, destroying their credibility. And number three, they were, number three, defeating their cause. They were, number three, defeating their cause. Write that down. Now, verses 7 and verse 8 explain what, what's at stake spiritually when, when Christians bring litigation against each other. So let's look at verse 7. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means... You have been completely defeated already. I want to stop there. I'm going to read that again. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. You see, to have unbelieving judge, an unbelieving judge arbitrate for two Christians is a defeat, a defeat regardless of the verdict, regardless of the outcome. Why? Because no matter who wins the lawsuit, the cause of Christ suffers. Because people are turned off. Listen now, people are turned off when, when they see believers fighting each other in an open, aggressive, hostile way. Listen, friends, we defeat our cause when we cheat our church of its testimony by not, listen, by not being salt and light to the world. We defeat our cause when we cheat our world of our witness. We defeat our cause when we cheat God of his glory. 
Ephesians chapter 3, verse 21. Ephesians 3, 21. Paul writes to him, speaking of God, to God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. But when we're fighting each other in an open, aggressive, hostile way, the church doesn't bring glory to God. We are cheating God of his glory. Let's read on. Let's read it on. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Now, now you're not going to hear that. You will not hear that in a secular court. That is absolutely contrary, contrary to the standards of the world. But that's the overall point that Paul is making here. When you trust Jesus Christ as Savior, the way you think about life is entirely different than the world. And Paul's point, listen now, follow me now. Paul's point is that it's better to lose financially than to lose spiritually. Losing the case is better than losing your testimony. I'm going to say it again. Losing the case is better than losing your testimony. Now, there's a lesson. We always have a lesson, right? Here's a lesson. and get it. The lesson is this. Let it go. Let it go. Listen, there's a time and there's a place to stand up for ourselves. Okay? I get that. But there are times when we... When we, would, when we would be much better off just, just, just letting it go. Just letting it go. Friends, we have to learn. We have to learn to pick our battles. Now, let's be honest. Let's be honest here. Some of us, for, for whatever reason, can't let it go. Everything is a major conflict. And yet, we will end up doing much more damage to others by trying to be right, uh, just right about everything than any bit of good we think we're trying to accomplish. Now, I want to give you four reasons, quickly here, four reasons why we need to let it go, why we would rather be wronged and why we, we would rather be cheated, why we, would, we need to let it go. The first reason is this, because there will be times when we want others to let it go. Because there'll be times we want others when we will want others to let it go. The second reason is this, because the situation is not going to change. Sometimes the situation is just not going to change and we just need to let it go. The third reason is this, because that is what grace demands. There are times where we just got to give grace. And the fourth reason is this, because God's reputation is more important than our own. God's reputation is more important than our own. And this is a key argument for choosing to overlook a wrong rather than, rather than to fight. And Paul argues that it's better to absorb a loss and, and a hurt rather than risking tarnishing God's reputation. If you're still with me, say amen. I, I want you to think about how many problems would be solved, how many churches would avoid splits, how many friendships would remain intact, how many families would remain whole if we would just let it go and put the situation in God's hands. 
Now, if you're saved, say amen. Come on, if you're saved, say amen. Listen, our, our primary concern shouldn't be to protect our rights or our possessions, but to protect our relationship with God and our relationship with other fellow believers. Friends, listen to me. As Christians, come on, if you're a Christian, say amen. As Christians, we should never forget that we are called to demonstrate a different lifestyle before the world, one in which we are ready to surrender our personal rights for the cause that you and I serve. Now, unfortunately, in the next verse, Paul tells us that the Corinthian believers were committed to just the opposite. They were committed to a lifestyle of demanding their rights in court. Look at verse 8. After all, said, after all that Paul said to them, verse 8 says, Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. So here Paul is accusing them of wronging others in the body of Christ with their aggressive legal pursuit of their personal rights. They were living like the unrighteous. Which brings us to Paul's next concern for these Sue happy Christians. He says their, their, their contentious behavior raises the question of whether some of them are really Christians. It's as if they are totally unaware of what Christian behavior ought to be like. Which brings us right into the, our first and last point. They were, number four, denying their conversion. They were, number four, denying their conversion. Now I want you to look at verses 9 through 10 with me. Denying their conversion, verses 9 through 10 with me. And, and these are heavy, heavy verses here. And Paul straight up, straight up says, and please listen, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? And Paul says, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. This is a broad term that covers all forms of sexual sin. And then he says, nor idolaters, those who worship false gods and get involved in false religious systems. Then he says, nor adulterers, those who break the marriage vows, unfaithfulness in marriage. And then he says, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders. Both terms refer to those who participate in homosexual acts. Verse 10, he says, nor thieves, stealing from others, cheating others, defrauding those who trusted you, nor the greedy, refers to making money and the things money can buy the center of your life, making those things the center of your life. Then he says, nor drunkards, nor drunkards being controlled by alcohol and any other artificial stimulant. Then he says, nor slanderers, refers to those who abuse others, especially uh, through abusive speech. It also applies to spouses who use verbal, emotional, and physical abuse in their marriage. It also includes gossips and rumor mongers. And then he says, nor swindlers, those who commit extortion and blackmail 
will inherit the kingdom of God. Nor, nor they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this is not an exhaustive list, but an exemplary, an exemplary one. And you see, what Paul's trying to tell the Corinthians is just like Christians should be different than unbelievers in the way they handle court cases, that difference should be reflected in all areas of life. And when the change is not there, Paul's saying, when the change is not there, we have every reason to question whether that person genuinely knows Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to note, I want you to note this, that even though homosexuality is a sin, and it is, there are a list of lots of other types of sin. And I say this because you see, sometimes as Christians, we think that homosexuality as the most evil thing in the world, but all these sins in this list are wrong. And what bothers me, and I'm just be honest with you, what bothers me is Christians who call out the sin of homosexuality. And again, it is a sin, but yet they're fornicating. These Christians are fornicating and shacking up with someone. I'm just saying. Now, since the issue of homosexuality is such a, a hot button issue in our culture and also in our church, I want to say this. And I don't want to spend too much time here because this is not the context of the text. In fact, I think that uh, in the near future, we should do a series on sexuality and the pressing issues of, of sexuality in today's culture. I think we should have this conversation. But I want to say this. As Bible-believing Christians, I'm going to say it again, as Bible, Bible-believing Christians, we believe God created human sexuality and that, and, that, and that it should be celebrated and listen, celebrated and enjoyed within the boundaries of marriage between one man and one woman. That the Bible is very, very clear. The Bible is very clear that all sexual activity outside, outside the union of a man and a woman in both the Old Testament and New Testament is considered immoral. It's sinful and displeasing to God. Whether it's homosexuality, adultery, fornication, or pornography. Now as Christians, and I want you to follow me here. As Christians, we can be loving to the LGBTQ community without being approving or affirming their lifestyle. We can be compassionate without compromising God's word. And you've heard me say this before. They're not the enemy, friends. They're not the enemy. They're the mission field. And we ought to pray for them. And when the opportunity arises, we ought to witness to them with, listen now, the loving grace and message of Jesus Christ. Now I want to say this. We all have attractions we ought not to act on. I'm going to say it again. We all have attractions we ought not to act on. Friends, listen, there's a big difference. Say that. Big difference between having the attractions and engaging in the actions. I'm going to say it again. There's a big difference between having the attractions and engaging in the actions. You see, Paul doesn't mean to suggest that 
A Christian cannot commit one of these sins because Christians can be guilty of, 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 of any of these sins, he lists here, and sometimes repeatedly. But a Christian, a true Christian, cannot and must not choose to live in these sins as a way of life, as a lifestyle. Listen, friends, I want you to hear my heart. If these sins, all of them or any of them, characterize the core of who you are as a person, then you cannot go to heaven. The text is very, very clear about that. This is not my opinion. This is not what I think. But this is what I believe because the Word of God says it. And Paul is saying, if you continually, habitually are characterized Keyword characterized by this type of lifestyle listed here. He says, don't be deceived. You're not saved. And you will not be in heaven. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see, friends, heaven isn't for everyone. It's just for those who have genuinely repented of their sin and trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. And one of the ways, listen now, one of the ways you can tell that's occurred is that there's a change and changing life. And that's the point of the next verse. Look at verse 11. And I love what Paul writes here. And that is what some of you were. That's awesome. And that is what some of you were. Man, this, this fills my heart with joy. Paul says, don't forget who you were. That's past tense. Past tense. And so what Paul does, he reminds them that God had radically changed their tenses. Once some of you were sexually immoral, but not anymore. Once some of you were idolaters, but, but not anymore. Once some of you were adulterers, but, but not anymore. Once some of you were male prostitutes, but not anymore. Once, once some of you were, were homosexuals, but, but not anymore. Once some of you were thieves, but, but not, on, not, not anymore. Once some of you were greedy, but, but not anymore. Once some of you were drunkards, but not anymore. Once some of you were slanderers, but, but not anymore. Once some of you were swindlers, but, but not, Paul says, anymore. And man, this truth, this truth is amazing. It's both liberating and sober, isn't it? Paul says, don't forget who you were. And then he says, don't forget who you are. Did you get that? Don't forget who you were and don't forget who you are. Let's read on what he says. But you were washed. You were sanctified. Circle those words. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's who you are. 2 Corinthians 5.17. You got to love this. You might know this by heart, right? Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Paul wanted the Corinthian believers to know that they had been like the unrighteous, but now, but now... They were new creations in Christ. And I love, I love how Paul uses three amazing terms 
to describe their new status as Christians. And I want you to follow me. Let's go back to the text there. But you are washed. Say that. You are washed, Paul says. Washed speaks of the new life. You're washed. It speaks of regeneration. And I love what Titus 3.5 says. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through, listen now, here it is, the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. But you were washed. Then he says, you were sanctified. Say that, sanctified. Sanctified speaks of, a, of, of, of new behavior. To be sanctified is to be made holy inwardly and to be able in the Spirit's power to live a righteous life outwardly. Hey, before a person is saved, and we know this, right? Before a person is saved, he or she has no holy nature, no, no capacity for a holy living, but in Christ, say that, in Christ, they are given a new nature and can live out, say live out, the new kind of life. But you were washed, you were sanctified. And then he says you were justified. Say that, justified. Justified speaks of new standing before God. Gosh, I love this. You see, in Christ, we are clothed in his righteousness. And God, say God, now sees in us. God sees in us his son's righteousness instead of our sin. Christ's righteousness is credited to our account. Somebody please say amen. Romans chapter 4. Write it down. Verses 22 through 25. Romans 4, verses 22 through 25. Paul writes, This is why it was accredited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credit, credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Awesome. Let's go back to the text. The end of verse 11. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here we get it. Get it now. And by the Spirit of our God. By the what? Say it. The Spirit of our God. God's telling these Corinthian believers, God's Holy Spirit now lives in you. He lives in you to give you the power to live a different kind of life. What Paul is trying to show us is how we can tell if a person is a true believer in Christ. And Paul is saying to the Corinthian believers, you guys had experienced transformation in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, so continue to live that way. Paul saying, man, can't you see what Christ has done for you? Can't you see that you've been forgiven by Him? I mean, you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified, right? So then, 
For Christ's sake, don't wrong others in the body of Christ with your aggressive legal pursuit of your personal rights. Don't live like you're unrighteous. Live as one who has been transformed by the Spirit of God. That's what Paul is saying. Can I get an amen? Now, two lessons here. Two lessons. If you're still with me, say amen. Two lessons. The first lesson is this. And you got to get this. First lesson is this. You can change. Someone say that. You can change. And perhaps you committed some of these Things listed in verses 9 and 10, perhaps you might still be doing some of these things. And you're probably thinking to yourself, have I gone too far? Am I beyond salvation? Am I beyond reach? And the answer is no. Not at all. Not at all. You see, the awesome thing, and I love this, the awesome thing about the church is it's composed of people who have turned from these things, not just turned from these things, but people who are still struggling with these things. Friends, when we turn from our sins and confess them to Jesus Christ, He forgives us, He cleanses us, He lives in us, and He begins to change us. Hey, He loves you just the way you are, but He loves you too much to let you stay that way. It's not come as you are and stay as you are. It's come as you are and he will begin to change you so you can change. Now folks tell me, well, I can't change. Yes, you can. You can change. And I've heard people who live in the homosexual lifestyle who say, well, I was just born that way. Well, let's say if that's true. I don't believe that, but let's say that's true. Then that's why you need to be born again. You can change. Paul says, and that is what some of you were. That's what some of you were. So you can change. The second lesson is this, is compassion. Say that, compassion. That's the lesson, compassion. And let's be honest, when we look at these lists of sins, we can become pharisaical and look down in condemnation at people who are caught in these kinds of sins rather than look at them with compassion. The truth is, you know what? Without Jesus, we are no different. Without Jesus, we are no different. And friends, I'll tell you, as we, we look at the world and, and, and the people in the world and how they're living and, and, and how they're engaged in these sinful lifestyles. We, we, we shouldn't condemn them. We should have compassion for them. And we should be brought to tears and we, we should pray for them and, and, and want to minister and witness to them that they would come to know Jesus and be changed by the power of the gospel. You can change. And we as believers need to be compassionate to those who are living those sinful lifestyles. So as we, we wrap this up, three takeaways from this message, okay? Three takeaways. The first takeaway is this. Christians, 
are more able than unbelievers. Christians are more able than unbelievers to judge righteously in civil matters. Christians are more able than unbelievers to judge righteously in civil matters. The second takeaway is this. Legal controversies between Christians can damage the reputation and witness of the church and the gospel in the eyes of unbelievers. I'm going to say it again. Legal controversies between Christians, between brothers and sisters in Christ, can damage the reputation and witness of the church and the gospel in the eyes of unbelievers. And the third takeaway is this. Believers have a new identity in Christ. Now that's you say amen. And this new identity requires new, get this now, and appropriate, appropriate, excuse me, appropriate behavior. This new identity requires, get this now, a new lifestyle, a new way of living. Therefore, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I, I do hope that this message resonated deep within our hearts. And Father, if any of us have a dispute with a fellow believer, Father, might we seek godly people with godly wisdom to help us resolve the dispute with understanding and fairness so that we can preserve the relationship, so that we can preserve our witness to the world and preserve the unity of the body of Christ. And Father, might we keep fresh in our minds and hearts that we have a new identity and that new identity requires a new lifestyle, a new way of living. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Can someone please say amen? Now, before I let you go, I, I want to give you an opportunity, if you have not yet, to receive Jesus Christ, to come into your life, to be your personal Lord and Savior, to follow Him. And if that's you, friends, you've got to admit that you're a sinner, acknowledge that you need a substitute, and accept Jesus as Savior. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will, not might, but you will be saved. So that's you. Would you bow your head and close your eyes and repeat this prayer after me? Dear Jesus, I, I admit that I'm a sinner and I need you and invite you into my life to be my personal Lord and Savior, to, to wash me, to cleanse me, and to save me. I confess with my mouth that you are Lord, and I believe within my heart that God raised you.
from the dead. I receive you this day. I am saved, sealed, sanctified, satisfied, justified, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. I am born again. Thank you, Jesus, for receiving me. And from this day forth, I will serve you faithfully until you call me home. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, if you said that prayer, we would, we would love to hear from you. And so if that's you, you can email us at contact at cryout.org. Again, that's contact at cryout.org. So I hope you all have a wonderful Sunday. Don't forget, next Sunday, this coming Sunday, uh, April 4th at 10 a.m., we're going to meet, uh, we're going to have our in-car church services in the church parking lot. And hopefully I'll see you there. If I don't see you in person, I will see you online. Love you all. God bless you. Take care.